Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation about the parable of the workers in the vineyard. So Scott, you know, schedules have kind of been crazy and we haven't been able to, to jump back into our discussions about these parables that we've been having in this larger writing project that our Masters of Arts and New Testament cohort has been working on. Um, but I'm excited to jump back in today because this is the parable that myself and my friend Mickey have been working on um, with the, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. So you ready to get, get this thing kicked off again today, Scott? I am. And I, I want to clarify that a part of uh, our master's program is helping students and giving students the opportunity to write in such a way that it becomes accessible for leaders in the church, for lay people in the church, and not just for academics. So they're not, we're not writing chapters and papers that uh, only academics have an interest in, but we're trying to learn to communicate with the church. And one of the projects we're working on together as a class, in addition to, or as a cohort, in addition to our, our normal coursework, is a project on the parables in which we're examining the parables of Jesus, not all of them, but some of them, in light of the theme that Jesus is asking us to imagine a world like this. Every one of the parables is a story that uh, initiates or ushers uh, a listener, an auditor, a reader into an imagined world that we could call a kingdom reality, the kingdom world. And Jesus wants us to experience that reality in the in the concrete details of the story and how the plot works so that we will be transformed about what kingdom means and learn to live in our world today in light of the kingdom that is both present and to come. And clearly, one of those parables that uh, invites controversy and in, surely invited a great deal of misunderstanding when Jesus originally gave the parable is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Here's a story where Jesus hires, or, or the uh, kingdom, the landowner hires different workers at different times seemingly giving them all the same pay at the end of the day. Some have worked all day long and others just a few hours and they start to bellyache and moan that uh, this is unfair. And this is where we enter with uh, both Mickey Linaway, one of our students, and you, Chaz Robbins, another of our students, into, the, into this parable. So I'm going to start with you, Chaz, and uh, both of you will, will uh, have an opportunity to answer this question. But uh, what were what were for you one or two of the insights that you got from this parable as you read it and worked on it? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, I always try to allow my attention to be drawn to in putting my place in putting myself in the place of the original hearers is what's going to be disorienting. What does Jesus flip in this story? That's really, uh, you know, an everyday common occurrence that would have happened in hiring laborers to, to accomplish a task and a work. And um, the two things that you know, came out for me, and this is really from, from Snodgrass, was that 
the the fact that the work the the vineyard owner would come back multiple times to the 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 town center to hire workers that this would have been uh, a, a really an extravagant move to to waste really all of that time to go back and forth time and, and time and time again and so we see an um, a willingness to to be generous and extravagant in that as well as the the way that he paid everybody and this is probably more shocking because you know it gets clarified in the reaction to the other workers that he paid everybody the same thing and so being able to put myself in the, the original hearers of the story, um, I think those two things are, are things that, that come to mind for me. And, you know, I think we'll, we'll continue as we talk about the implications of that. But, um, you know, those are, those are two of the things that come up first for me. Well, Mickey, I wonder if you have anything to add or correct or suggest uh, in light of what Chaz has said, in light of your own reading. Well, certainly not correct, but I would like to add that uh, I um, I found the concept of believing in God's grace and his faithfulness and our comfort in him and his ways is one that I often personally have overlooked. I fear things. I worry about things. And I don't understand why things happen the way they do. And then in the end, um, I usually see some reason why it was the way it was, and I, I um, am able to rest in knowing that God's got this and that he will always work for my good. Yeah, and um, Mickey, you might, I don't know if you want to uh, mention your, your husband's uh, struggles lately, but that's, I, that's what I heard when I heard you just say this, is that there are things in your family going on that have been hard to deal with and comprehend. And I'm sure that's part of what's going on here, huh? Sure. Uh, we have, um, my husband fell and broke six bones last November, and that's been kind of a continuing struggle. Just found out in the past couple of weeks that he actually broke his spine in two places when he fell. Oh my. Yeah. And, and my 96 year old mother-in-law is in the end stages of Alzheimer's disease and is really struggling with that. And it's very difficult to watch and it's difficult to understand frankly, why she continues to struggle and, you know, a small child loses their life. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that, that, that those experiences resonate with the way this parable works. Um, and because it is, it is a shocking parable about grace. And I wonder if either one of you wants to comment on the oddity of the parable or, or let's just say this, let's start with uh, what are some of the little social, historical, cultural details in the parable uh, that you think need to be understood that are probably not immediately understood by our context? So, Mickey, maybe one detail, and then Chaz a detail, and let's see if we can fill this out a bit. Sounds good. Um, the detail that I had no awareness of before starting this paper was the idea that the amount of money that the vineyard owner paid the people who worked was considered a full day's pay for that period in time, one denarius. Yes. And so so by paying them that amount, he was giving them sustenance and and supporting his the person's family for a full day. Whereas if he had given them money just based on the fact they had worked half a day or less, then they wouldn't have the money that it took to sustain them for a full day. I thought that was very interesting. 
Yeah, you know, I I think that's the you know that's the the, the main one too, and um, and to coming back to the the realization, I think that was one of the cultural things that was drawn to my attention about the frequency of, of coming back and forth. That um, you know that that would have been uncommon, and it, it would have been yeah, it would have been common to go every every day to the marketplace to to hire workers, but to to be willing to to go back and forth, and I think you know that sheds light to me on the the still generousness that that is reality that can often get overlooked as we as we look at our own particular circumstance that we find ourselves in and begin to allow envy or greed or or, or, or or doubt you know creep into those different things that that God really is generous that really he really is is faithful in, in those circumstances whether we can see it or not you know the uh, the interesting thing then is this is not really about uh, minimum wage laws. Mm-hmm. This is not about hourly labor. Right. This is sort of like the manna story of the Old Testament, where uh, everybody, if you had 10 people in your family, you picked up enough for 10. If you had two people in your family, you picked up enough for two, and everybody had what they needed. And then the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 13 to 14, talks about, he uses the word equality. Uh, that uh, that your abundance right now might help the people who are lacking, and someday their abundance might help you when you're lacking. And Paul says, so that there might be equality between the rich churches or the wealthier churches and the poorer churches. And that's sort of his theme. This is not about um, uh, hourly labor laws, but about the fact that this landowner paid everybody what they needed for a full day's labor and for sustenance for a full day. Mm -hmm. So he gave everybody um, a day's wage. Uh, So that, that's, that is generous Mm -hmm. because he's really generous with the people who work later in the day. Mm -hmm. But what about the accusation of injustice? Do you, do you think, do you think there's something to this and, and what's going on in this parable that what strikes everybody as injustice uh, for Jesus is, you know, you guys are missing the boat, he's saying. What, what's going on? Here? Yeah, well, I think the the generousness of the daily wage is, is clear, but also the fact that it's not... It's not an overabundance that that creates a surplus, just, you know, just like the manna story that you bring it back to. Um, it, it wasn't about having way beyond our, our needs and, and our resources that that set us up for, uh, you know, beyond the the daily needs that we have, and so. Like you said, you know, God gives us God gives us what we need, and sometimes I, I think this gets manifest in the way of envy that we lack to realize what we do have, and and we focus so much on what we don't have that we don't realize how God's been faithful in, in the situation right in front of us. And so I think that's what he's getting it, you know, getting to the the hearers to, to challenge them in and to invite them into, and you know this. This manifests itself in in so many different ways. I, I really like the way one particular question is flipped on this, and um, and and I heard it first from Ken Robinson. He he did a great TED talk on education and is an educational expert, and he made the realization and observation that many times we like to ask the question, 
how intelligent am I? Like we put ourselves in the spectrum and, and list of everybody else and in the list of everybody else in the world, I'm, I'm this smart. This is where I rank. Instead of asking the question, how am I intelligent? How am I uniquely created and gifted and skilled to do what only I can do? And what is my situation in my life that is the life that only I can live? And, um, you know, I think this is the, the, that path, the wrong path, being one of envy and distraction from what we have, is the, the way that, that Jesus is warning us about going down and inviting us into the other path uh, of Listen, you really can experience fullness and goodness of, of what I have given you because I want to give you and I have given you what you need. Mickey, do you have uh, comments on that? Well, the only thought that I would add to it is that um, I think that it underscores God's faithfulness and in keeping his promises to us because the owner of the vineyard told the people that were work that worked early what they were going to receive. He didn't tell them that it was going to be based on the numbers of hours that they worked or that they would get much more than someone who started after the lunch break or something. So they went into it knowing what they were going to get and that was what they received. And so um, their envy or their feeling of mistreatment or whatever is really not based on anything other than um you know, like a com competition or a feeling of want needing to one up the next guy because they were given exactly what they were told they would be given. Yes. So the, uh, so the complainers, uh, have no reason to complain, uh, because of the, because of the agreement that they themselves implicated themselves in that they, uh, agreed to when they said, okay, I'll work, I'll work six hours for this amount of money. What I think, uh, uh, that I thought Chaz drew good attention to was the envy of the people who had worked more over the people who had worked less. But the, uh, the striking uh, change for me uh, is the landowner does not, in that sense, appeal to the, his own act of justice. He appeals to the fact that he's generous. And they don't like generosity. Hmm. And I wonder, I wonder if you guys, uh, you two have have talked about or considered, and even now, right now, you could you could uh, think about this: is where where is it that we get irritated by someone's generosity when we think it ought to be an act of justice or commensurability, but the, uh, but because we, we think that's the way justice works, the, wor the way the world works. But this landowner wants them to realize that a world of justice can be overwhelmed by a world, a kingdom marked by generosity. Um, any thoughts on that? Well, the, the first thing that comes to mind for me, and I'm not exactly sure this is in keeping with where you're going with this, but the disparity among like the payment of professional sports stars as opposed to the payment of uh, people in our in the armed services or police officers or something like that that typically um, sports stars are paid such over the top salaries to you know play a game on Sundays whereas people who are going out and providing protection for the rest of the community or 
uh, defending our country are, are usually paid very minimal amounts. And that is one area where I could see that that might uh, that might fit in. That somebody might might complain and say what we're doing is far more significant in society than what a, a what a pro footballer is doing, who's not even playing all that much, uh, by the way. Uh, and they would say that's an act, that's injustice. So that that's a sort of complaint that we would hear, and I, and I've heard it many times myself. Um, what are what are some? Uh, where do you think we? Uh, have the most problems with generosity. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, when when it is said that someone um, is, let's say, is a criminal, they've done something wrong, and they they go to prison or they get caught, and then they genuinely repent. Now we know there are lots of fake. Uh, repentances mm-hmm. in prisoners just so and and they become sudden Christians just so they can get out but there are so many stories of the transformation of prisoners where uh, when that when they come out sometimes the evangelical community jumps up and down because they've got someone in their corner mm-hmm. but it is very difficult for people to be generous and, and I want to give one example there is a great coffee company in Wheaton called I have a bean. And they employ ex-prisoners. And they employ ex-prisoners because many of these prisoners uh, are unemployable because an employer does not want to be generous with their own money and their own time because it's a risk to hire someone like this. And this company has proven that they've been able to hire over and over in prisoners. They do a good job working with them, training them, and then helping them to move on into business careers. So, uh, and I have found uh, that people, you know, I've talked to people about this. And here's the standard response. I think that's fantastic what they do. (laughs) But I would never hire someone like that. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Is that an illustration of the generosity versus, uh, let's say, envy? Oh, I, I think it is. And I love that you bring up I Have a Bean because that's the coffee that my churches uses. And I got to say, it's delicious, too, on top. They don't just do a good job. It's pretty good, isn't it, Scott? I had a, I had a cup this morning. and I, I, Next week, um, we, we have the privilege of, of being at Regent College in Vancouver. So there's no, there's no complaint about being in Vancouver and they have plenty of nice coffees, but I know I'm going to miss my I have a bean coffee next week, even though Vancouver has good coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is that is for sure. And I think you bring up a great example. And um, I recently had a meeting with uh, a gentleman in our church who has had a long career in criminal justice and, and wardens in different prisons and, and such things. And uh, he said something that that stuck with me, and I think it, it connects the you know the points here into this story. Is that um, he said we keep people locked up for one of two reasons: either we're still mad at them. Or we're afraid of them. And yeah. he, he said, to be afraid of somebody is a good reason to keep somebody locked up because that's, you know, that's, that, that's still, you know, in the, in the nature of society and structure and order and all of that. There are times for that. But to have somebody, because we're just mad at them, is a really bad reason to keep them locked up. And it, it doesn't facilitate 
both the society and the healing that could be possible in their life. And so I just appreciated hearing his perspective and in, in working in that. And, and I think that, you know, flows straight out of the implication of this passage. And, um, you know, to even extend it to further just than just an extreme example, I think there's a direct connection to how we view our community and church, because it's so easy to get wrapped up and to make a switch that we don't even realize that we make, that we begin to see our community as something that we just are so focused on the people that are there, and um, and rightly so. You mean you should have t- close, tight knit community, but we sometimes focus on the people who are there at the detriment of the people who are outside, who don't know God, who aren't in a relationship with Jesus, and and those voices are oftentimes the ones that get lost. And when we do things, sometimes to invite them in to the community and to bring them a part of the the story that God is calling and, and is telling through our different churches oftentimes that ruffles people's feathers. And to be generous in that way to people who are not yet a part of the community, whether it's prisoners or whether it's single moms or whether it's just the, you know, the family down the street, like it, it, it creates challenge. And it's, well, I mean, it's this tempting. is where I think, I think this is where, Chaz, you're accurate, and that is we we are afraid. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know it's a risk, mm-hmm. uh, but we have to ask the question, what does it mean to be generous? But I, I want to bump over to Mickey, who has, you, you know, your career was in, the, was in this world. Yes, it was. Your, and your husband's career was mm-hmm. in this world. And I just wonder, um, we've moved this from labor laws, you know, just payments, et cetera, into the realm of generosity as a, as a general factor. And we've included prisoners and criminals. And I wonder, uh, I, I just, I'm getting really curious here. What's, what's going on in Mickey's head right now? Well, you're fu- it's funny you should say that because it's right on the line that I was thinking, having worked in the court system in the probation department for 30 years. Um, what, what comes to mind for me is, how there, we, I've seen so many people who came through the system and what they lacked was just the opportunity, just someone that believed in them and that was willing to support them. It didn't take necessarily, although there were times when we raised money or took up donations, giving generously of financial means, but it meant giving generously of our concern for them and our faith in the fact that they could turn their lives around and get back on the the path that they needed to go on. And when we withdraw that from people, all we do is perpetuate the same cycle because the person who can't ever feel like they're worthy or cannot get their life together because they're totally lacking in support typically goes back to the life that they had before, which is, you know, a life of crime, be it petty or be it something very serious. So if you look at at it from the standpoint that as being a generous person, generous with our time, generous with our faith, that we are actually uh, adding to improving the entire world, that we're not just helping this person up off their feet, but we are actually making a commitment to create a better world. Oh, there you go. Uh, I mean, it, it is to imagine a world that is gen, uh, that is generous. But now, Mickey, in the court system, how did you see generosity? You know, here's what I believe: in uh, as a big picture, the American court system 
has lots of influences from the Christian faith, from the Judeo-Christian ethic. And one of the distinctive features of the Christian faith is this sense of God's forgiveness and grace and generosity that no matter how sinful we are, we can be forgiven, and that Christians are to become agents of forgiveness. And I wonder in the court system how you saw generosity like this manifesting itself. Well, I was very fortunate because I was in the probation department. So I was in a department that had um, kind of its whole role was in reaffirming people and, um, you know, getting people into a, a more productive life. We weren't hampered by things like uh, sentence, sentencing limits and, and deciding what punishments were appropriate. Mm-hmm. So where, where you could see some ger- generosity was that we often had programs, we had work training programs where we um, helped people get the skills that they needed to get a job. We had a, a, one of the ways that they would pay back their uh, financial obligation was to do work in a volunteer effort. And a lot of times that volunteer effort led to them um, securing a, a job with the people that mm-hmm. they on their public service through. We, mm-hmm. There were a lot of programs that did exactly um, what we're talking about as far as reestablishing them as a productive member of society. And a lot of times that involved a lot of generosity, particularly on the part of probation officers who put in extra time and extra def- extra effort and made contacts and and uh, did the research on those kinds of things and spent time with people and and kind, loving time with people. Yeah. I was always very um, proud of the fact that the relationship between the majority of probation officers and the people who were on their caseloads were ones of uh, were cases of support and of lifting them up and not certainly not scolding or or you know punishing them. Okay, now I'm going to change topics because I think, that the American system of, I, I, I get irritated by the length of sentences, by the seeming trapping of people into prison cells for the rest of their life uh, with no hope of parole. Uh, I understand there are John Wayne Gacy's in the world, and there are people who seem to be almost, uh, in many ways, almost unredeemable or they're unchangeable and keeping them in prison might be the safest for the society. I understand that. But at the same time, we could probably all take a big dose of of themes of restoration and reconciliation and see if we can improve in that direction. But but here's here's something that I've heard this parable interpreted as. And uh, I don't know if you you two bumped into this in your uh, in your research, but There are some people who think what this parable is actually teaching is a form of communism, economic communism, that no matter how much you work, everybody should get the same pay. So if I am a professor, uh, a first-year professor should get the same pay as a 40th-year professor. And if I have been working um, in the court system for six months, I should get the same pay as someone who's been working for 56 years. So I wonder if you bumped into into this sort of economic interpretation of the parable, and if you have any response. Let's start with Chaz. I know we're we're getting near the end of our time here, but yeah, sure. No, but this is a good question, and because that is one of the interpretive moves that people have made in the history of, of working through and interpreting this parable. And um, <clears throat> you know, I I think it it goes back 
kind of, I mean, similar to the question of uh, another way that it's been interpreted is asking about, you know, rewards in heaven. And, and does this talk about rewards in heaven? And I think, you know, both of those are asking the wrong question of what Jesus is wanting us to ask. And, it, you know, it'd be it like, terrible, yeah. yeah. And, you know, it would be like asking, you know, how many home runs did you hit in the third quarter of the basketball game? Like it, it just, it, it doesn't, it doesn't fit together. And, um, and I'm trying to, to see here because I know, um, I know this is one that Snodgrass took on and, and clarified. Um, but the fact that, the way that that it's set up is is really seeming i guess from my perspective to focus much more on the issues like we've said of combating envy and inviting into the reality of generosity yeah. um, and then and, and then trying this to often, make... this often happens happens in parables isn't it? because right. parables are sort of open ended and you enter into a story and the story doesn't often end with a very crisp clear uh two chapter explanation of exactly what I wanted to say and exactly what I didn't want to say. And here are the points you need to use in your Bible study. Uh, this is, this is not what Jesus does. He tells these stories and he evokes things and you get kind of twisted and turned into the plot. And the next thing you know, you're asking questions that aren't asked or are not answered in the parable. So, um, to find an economic communism in this parable is probably missing the point, but clearly Jesus is, I would say this, he is challenging the economy of, of that day and yeah. the way things operated. Yeah. So it, it's not like there's no economy at, at work. I, I wonder if Mickey has any thoughts on this theme or if we kind of touch on all the points. Well, I think you covered it pretty well. However, I I think what came to mind for me was that um, to juxtapose, for example, the court system and the grace of God is a very difficult thing. <laughs> <laughs> and so, whereas I think um, that the grace of God is certainly an example for a way to live, I don't know that we we really pay attention to that in, in a lot of areas. And I, I think this is, you know, talking about the prison system and locking people up forever, I think that is one of those ways that we we don't follow that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think the going back to that question, it also is important to pay attention to the the audience in which he's telling this and most likely being, you know, the disciples. And then the fact that he he's talking to the disciples, it it doesn't mean that there's and even really in the parable there's not explicit instruction for care for the needy or for um, you know, I guess you could make the connection with the, the fact that everybody gets paid the same wages and stuff, but the 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 fact that what happens is when it invites us to, to set our focus on on something that we should be setting our focus on. And when we set our focus on that, what is implicit in that choice and that decision is that we will do things like care for the poor. There will be equity among us when when we realize that and yep, we begin yep. to, to, to live that out. And so even though it's not explicit, it, it is implicit, I think, in, in what happens in the outcome of the story. So, um, and I think that, and that's the point, Chaz. I think this is what Jesus does with his parables. He ushers us into a room in which we hear this story. We hear this amazing story 
that creates all kinds of turbulence inside about, well, that's unfair. Mm -hmm. And what kind of owner would do that sort of thing? But my, my, he was amazingly generous with those poor people at the end. And maybe if I were a person at the end, I would have been thrilled with what I got paid and, and dancing up and down the road uh, for a half day's labor, I got a full day's pay. Uh, so I think we, we hear that, but what he, what he really presses upon his disciples in this parable is that God does things in ways that other people don't do. Mm-hmm. And what God does is extraordinarily generous. And we need to accept the generosity of God mm-hmm. and, uh, in a sense, uh, reevaluate our system of how we look at things. And yeah. we, mu- we might be trying to become more generous in what we do. And generosity becomes contagious in a community. And all of a sudden, then we're not uh, comparing salaries, yeah. but we're rejoicing that one another's needs are being met. So. Yeah. Cool. So I'll, I'll, if I will, if I could add anything to, to wrap up and then and you guys can um, give your closing thoughts and stuff, I would say on a personal level, this invites me to see success in a new way of, you know, how, how I define success is just doing my best to be my best to who God created me to be. And that God is inviting me to be okay with that, to tell my own story and not feel like I have to, to measure up to, to everybody else because he's given me what he's given me and, and that that's generous. And for a, a communal implication, it's to allow the focus on, on of our our focus on God's generosity to create in us that same generosity to others who who need it and to be more excited about the flourishing of others than our own flourishing and our own desire for for them to be to be who God created them to be and to be okay with that and to be happy about that. So, um, this is that, that's how it's been challenging me. And, um, yeah, I'm grateful to get to talk about it today. Yeah. Very good. Um, I think we've run out of time here, but it was a really, uh, this is a really good parable. Uh, This is one of my favorite parables because, um, no matter what happens when you're done with it, you don't feel like you have it mastered. It, It, it's one of those parables that continually comes back to challenge you with categories unlike the way the world works. So I see in this parable one of the brilliant displays of kingdom realities over against empire realities. And the kingdom reality is a is a is an economy of generosity. Uh, let's call it that way. So so it's been it's been a good day. It's been a good time in Mickey and Chaz. Uh, Chaz is a dual role here as the host and also as the student, and I appreciate your careful work on this parable, and I look forward to um, reading your paper, and it'll probably be today, maybe tomorrow. (laughs) All right. Good deal. Thanks for joining us, Mickey. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure. Yeah, thanks. thanks for you. Thanks for joining us, listeners. Um, we're grateful to, as always, have you with us, and uh, we look forward to be with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.